You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, Tip Off listeners. Maeve here. We're working hard on new episodes for you, and we have some more great stories coming up in this series. But this week, we're taking a dip into our archive. As the Russian regime is accused of breaking international law and committing untold atrocities in Ukraine, we're republishing the first of a two-parter, originally put out in 2018. This is the story of how Heidi Blake and her team of journalists at BuzzFeed UK revealed a series of deaths all on British soil, and all linked to Russian actors. Now, these episodes came out a few weeks before the horrifying news about people being poisoned in Salisbury by Novichok. So stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. And for now, enjoy a classic from our archives. Scott Young committed suicide. That's what the news report said. The millionaire appeared to have jumped from the window of his lavish London home on the evening of December 8th, 2014. He was found more than 30 foot below, his lifeless body impaled on the wrought iron railings surrounding his luxurious home. Despite rumours and intrigue about the shady company he was keeping, months later a coroner's report ruled out foul play. London property tycoon Scott Young dies after falling onto railings, read the news headlines. The gory details were all the more jarring, couched in the emotionless reporting of the newspaper clippings. Clippings that had been packed neatly into a carry-on bag. Heidi Blake's carry-on bag. She was on her way to New York. And she didn't know it then, but the journey would be longer and take her much further than that. From cold parish streets to the sun-drenched patios of Midwestern US restaurants, to turned-over flats and secret safe houses. But we don't start there. We start with a tip-off. Heidi Blake had worked for the Sunday Times for years. She had broken huge stories there, exposing alleged bribery by Qatar to win the 2022 World Cup or her work uncovering the corruption at the heart of FIFA. But now she was ready for a fresh challenge. She was on her way to New York to meet Mark Schoofs, the head of BuzzFeed Investigations. And so I kind of turned up to see him in New York, clutching this news cutting, saying, like, this this is just a crazy story about this group of people who've all died. Pulling out the news story about Scott Young, 
Heidi explained to Shoofs what was going on. Scott Young was a multi-millionaire kind of fixer and property dealer, and he'd been embroiled in this eight-year divorce battle with his estranged wife, Michelle, which was quite a famous case. So people kind of knew who he was. But when he died, it became clear that he was the sixth at the time in a circle of friends, all of whom had died in, in what appeared to be very peculiar circumstances. And it wasn't clear what connected them, but there was sure as hell something weird going on. And he just absolutely loved it and was immediately like... Yes, let's do that. So Heidi had something. The scent of blood in her nostrils. But nothing more than that. Back in London, and in her new role as head of the UK investigations team, she got to work settling into the office, figuring out where the stationery cupboard was, and working out who to hire. It was a hectic period. And one day, Heidi returned to the office to hear she'd missed a series of mysterious phone calls. And I, I got, I think, a couple of notes from the, the receptionist at BuzzFeed to say somebody's trying to call, but they don't want to leave a name. Um, and both times, initially, I was like out of the office and so missed the call. and It was a bit tantalising. And then when this person eventually came through, the receptionist said to me, oh, like, it's her again. She's on the phone. Quick, take the call. So I, I grabbed the call. And yeah, it was this anonymous individual. And yeah, and asking me to, to go and meet her. Curious, Heidi set off to the address a woman on the phone had given her. Arriving in a luxurious part of town, she found the door she was looking for and knocked. A woman answered. Heidi could hardly believe her eyes. Yeah, I immediately recognised her. There, stood in the open doorway, was Michelle Young, Scott Young's widow, the man whose death Heidi could just not get out of her head. Blow me down with a feather. That is Michelle Young. I cannot believe this coincidence. In a strange twist of fate, Michelle had seen Heidi talking on TV about a previous investigation she'd done. And just thought, I'd quite like this person to investigate uh, my husband's death. And so she was convinced that Scott had been murdered for his money and that whoever had killed him had stashed away hundreds of millions of pounds that she believed he was hiding from her. Um, and she wanted she wanted his death properly investigated. And so that was, like, very weirdly how the story got off the ground. It was just complete serendipity. Trying to keep her cool, Heidi scribbled down notes. Michelle had been in a protracted and acrimonious divorce battle with Young, and she was convinced he had millions he'd kept secret from her. When she heard he was dead, she was convinced it wasn't suicide but murder, that the assassin had spirited their money away. It was a compelling story, of course. But, Heidi explained, she'd need a bit more to go on than that. Michelle was happy to oblige. She had documents. Boxes and boxes of them. And while it started with Michelle's documents, the stash would grow. In the end, the team had 250 boxes stuffed with paperwork, police files, surveillance tapes. So the size of the the cache of documents that we got hold of did present us with a real logistical challenge. So the first thing we did was um, Tom Warren, who is one of our brilliant investigative reporters, hired a truck and drove around multiple different locations picking up, you know, 17 boxes here and another 25 here and 50 there. Um, and carted them all off to a secure storage facility, um, kind of in a remote, remoteish part of the city. And so we stashed them all there. And then we had the challenge of how on earth are we going to pass this volume of material?
you've probably heard of the Pentagon Papers. They're at the center of the new Hollywood blockbuster, The Post. But you might not have heard about the office admin that went into getting them. Whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg and journalist Robert Rosenthal later reminisced on just what it took to photocopy 7,000 documents of top-secret US reports on clunky 1970s photocopiers. Here they are in a clip from investigative podcast Reveal. Page by page. And finally, it was just too slow, so I would put it in without putting the heavy cover on and wondering what this was going to do to my eyes. You know, I was possibly going to go blind eventually. I remember the green light, the green ray, thinking, is this going to sterilize me? Oh, so you had the same <laughs> yeah. concern. Well, more than 40 years on, and technology has come a long way. But with 250 boxes of papers, some things can't be automated. It was going to take someone to take out each page and scan it in. What we then did was, there was a very eager young reporter by the name of Richard Holmes, who'd just graduated from Westminster University and kept on hounding me. He'd seen we'd set up this new team and kept hounding me and saying he really wants to come and do an internship or have some work with us. And BuzzFeed doesn't take on unpaid interns, so I kept rebuffing him and saying, I'm really sorry, you look great, but we, you know, we don't have any opportunities here. Um, and then it occurred to me that, well, we've got 250 boxes of documents and we need someone to scan them all so that we can digitize them and put them on a computer and search them. And that seems like just the job for young Richard. Um, so, so we roped Richard in to do this. And I think this is one of the great origin stories of journalism because it's the most thankless possible task that you can conceive of. We shoved him in an airless, temporary office somewhere in East London with 250 boxes of documents and an industrial scanner on his own. I remember when me and Tom uh, turned up at uh, the warehouse picking documents up. This is Richard Holmes. And it was, I mean, knowing that I had to scan all these, it was very daunting. And I remember we actually put them, when we loaded them into the... Um, the truck that we were taking, the, the back wheels were basically covered by the arches of the of the car. We were so worried about going over speed bumps or anything because we just didn't know if the suspension could take it because we had that many documents in the back of the van. I just spent a month in this in this room, uh, which was dominated by sort of half the room was taken up by by these 250 plus boxes of, of documents and. Uh, just a desk and a computer and a scanner and I just spent the next month taking a box scanning it and moving it to the other side of the room and yeah like I say just did one box an hour um, for a month solidly how did you how did you keep sane doing that <laughs> I'm not sure I did keep sane <laughs> to be honest anyone thinking investigative journalism is glamorous you stand corrected. The worst part about it was actually removing the staples, the staples from the, the corners of each each bunch of documents because I didn't have one of those crocodiles. So my thumbs were a wreck after that month because I'd just been plying out staples from from the uh, from the pages. He not only cheerfully scanned every single one of those hundreds of thousands of documents himself, but he came out the other side smiling and really eager and having read them while scanning them and prepared a memo for me in which he outlined what he thought was the story and suggested that he believed that Scott Young may have been murdered by either the Russian Secret Service or the Mafia on the basis of what he'd read in the documents. 
And right from that very first moment, Richard identified some really big key top lines of the story that were still our top lines two years later when we eventually published it. And he just absolutely nailed it. Immediately, Heidi offered Richard a full-time job. So with all the documents scanned in, the team could get to work putting the pieces together. But they knew security had to be tight. And when we eventually had, well, when Richard had scanned all of the documents and we digitised them, um, we then uploaded them all to a custom-built database, which Tom developed um, with the help of a computer forensics company. Um, and we put really careful security measures in place. Slowly, over time, the team began to build up a picture of what was in all these documents. But at the same time, they were digging into other stories. So it wasn't for a few years that things started to really get moving. And it was really at the beginning of um, of 2017 when Russia had so clearly shot to the top of the international news agenda and it was kind of clear that Russian meddling in the West was probably the geopolitical story of our lifetimes that we thought, oh, hang on, we've got that enormous cache of documents about you know, potential Russian assassinations in the UK. Let's Let's accelerate work on that project. Looking back at all the info that had come out of their cache of documents, the team saw a whole web of people linked to Young. It became apparent very quickly that he'd been working at a high level as a fixer for Boris Berezovsky, who was a very prominent exiled oligarch and enemy of the Kremlin living in the UK, and a whole circle of oligarchs around Berezovsky. Um, and in the end, we connected Scott to eight other individuals in that circle who'd died in mysterious circumstances, and then to a kind of wider network of 14 suspicious deaths in the UK that we connected to Russia. We compiled an ever-expanding spreadsheet of bids for people that we wanted to get in touch with. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of people. And between the, the six of us who worked on the story, just kind of fanned out and contacted as many people as we possibly could. But with something as sensitive as this, how do you go about making contact? You can't very well call someone out of the blue and say, what do you know about Russian assassinations? I think when you're contacting people about something as sensitive as, as this, you ideally don't want to email people because the minute you've done that, there's an electronic trail that connects you. And if they might be willing to talk to you, you know, in deep confidence, but wouldn't want to be connected to the story, you've kind of already blown that gambit if you've already emailed them. So I would normally um, try and call people, if at all possible, get a mobile number and see if you can call them over an encrypted line like WhatsApp or Signal. Or if you're going to email them, send you send them a very innocuous email. But of course, I, I mean, I always think the best thing you can possibly do is to try to get to somebody in person if you can. If you can knock on their door or find a way to meet them um, either outside work or at an event um, or be introduced to them um, by another person that you're speaking to, then that generally helps to to win people's trust. So over the weeks and then months, the team started talking to as many people as possible, many of them on deep background. And in the course of those conversations, they came across yet more crucial pieces of the puzzle. One of them, a box full of crime scene evidence from Scott Young's flat. Tucked away in a corner room of their London office, Heidi and the team are laying out a range of assorted items. Blood-stained Adidas trainers, paperwork, a smashed mobile phone. This is the contents of police evidence bags from Scott Young's flat. 
other things he'd had in his pockets, the mobile phones he had on him. Um, and those were really revealing items. The smashed phone was particularly useful. Heidi wanted to know who Young had been contacting right before his death. Perhaps there'd be some clues in those communications. But the mobile was crushed to pieces, broken by Young's fall from his fourth floor window. But we had to get a forensics expert who could rebuild that and then show us who he'd been phoning and texting anywhere long just before he died. Um, and what that really revealed was a that he was he was scared when he died, but b that he, he didn't appear to be a person planning a suicide. He appeared to be a person making all sorts of plans for the future and not anticipating his own death. Um, although it was also very clear from the documents and emails that we obtained that he had been warning people for a long time that he thought he was being tailed by Russian hitmen. Of course. Writing about potential suicides is also always really difficult because people who kill themselves sadly do often do apparently contradictory things in the immediate lead up to taking that step, including making plans and things like that. So you can't say anything for sure, but it certainly helped to paint a picture of his state of mind immediately before his death um, and also helped us figure out who to get in contact with, who were the people who had been in touch with him immediately beforehand and could shed light for us on what had been happening for him in that period. Heidi had also managed to get in touch with Young's daughter, Sasha. She and her sister had received calls from their father on the day of his death. In one of the calls, he told his daughter he would speak to her the next day. Within hours, he was dead. Convinced their father hadn't taken his own life, the two young women visited his flat. There they took photo after photo, which they later showed to Heidi. Things just didn't add up. The place Young was supposed to have jumped from was a heavy sash window, which only opened at about 50 centimetres. On one corner of the window ledge, still neatly lined up in a row, was a Diet Coke can, a packet of cigarettes and a lighter. To jump from the window, Young would have had to have squeezed his tall frame through the narrow gap without knocking anything off. As soon as I saw the window, I knew it couldn't have been done, Sasha told Heidi. That window was so small, and he was so tall. It would take a few minutes just to manoeuvre out of it, she said. But it was the next photo that the women showed that took Heidi's breath away. There on the window ledge were scratches. Scratches that were about as far apart as the fingers on a hand. It turned out these photographs, and the women's own investigative work, was far more than the police had done. Yeah, the police investigation was extraordinarily negligent i mean they had they had not dusted for fingerprints around the window ledge where scott young fell they had not taken any photographs of the scene that fell to scott's daughters who went in and they photographed the window ledge and managed to get pictures of what appeared to be scratch marks on the windowsill which again didn't tend to suggest this was somebody who'd gone over voluntarily um they had not checked the cctv from the the area outside Scott's house. I mean, they, they basically had done absolutely nothing. They had turned up and within a matter of minutes said, this is a suicide and shut down any investigation. But while they were putting together the pieces of Young's death, Heidi and the team were continuing to search through all the documents they had and were finding even more documents out there. And we also web scraped, um, for example, the archives of the Litvinenko inquiry and lots of court judgments relating to some of the individuals in the story and corporate records and 
all sorts of other things and added all of that to this library. Amongst them were names of people who had died in unusual circumstances. People who were known enemies or provocateurs of the Russian state, whose deaths had all been logged as death by suicide, accident or natural causes. So we had a fairly comprehensive data set relating to um, these 14 people and their, their affairs. Um, that was all spearheaded by Tom Warren, who is our data guru and also an absolute genius at financial forensics. So he really led the way on piecing together these crazily complex international transactions between this kind of sprawling Byzantine networks of companies um, that were kind of at the core of, of some of the, these networks of men. As name after name came out of the records, keeping track of all of their links and interactions could have been hard. But as we began to piece that together, we gradually developed a kind of sprawling spider diagram on the wall of our office where we joined the dots between all of those individuals. So we have a somewhat sinister wall of death on our uh, on our office wall with, with photographs of all of the people involved in this network, not just the people who died, but also other people who kind of are, you know, the connections between those individuals, the different lawyers and accountants and fixers that they were using. Amongst those names was Boris Berezovsky, an exiled Russian oligarch and known agitator of the state, who was found hanged in his bathroom in 2013. Police said it was suicide. Police say there's no evidence of anyone else being involved in the so far unexplained death of the exiled Russian oligarch Boris Berezovsky. The victim is this man, Boris Berezovsky. He fled to England after a fallout with the Russian government. The cause of that fallout, accusing the Kremlin of poisoning a former Russian spy with radioactive material. That may be why a hazardous materials team was called to his home to help figure out the cause of his death, but nothing was found during the initial investigations. And then there was Gareth Williams, the British spy whose naked dead body was found decomposing in a padlocked sports bag in his bathtub. With Williams, the police declared his death was probably an accident. Or there was Dr. Matthew Puchner, a scientist whose research had helped a judge determine that former Russian spy Alexander Litvinenko had been assassinated using polonium. It was another totally extraordinary story. He is was a, a nuclear scientist who was instrumental in the the evidence which connected the murder of Alexander Litvinenko to the Kremlin. He'd measured the amount of polonium that had been used to kill Litvinenko, and a few weeks after the public inquiry in part on the basis of that evidence, connected Litvinenko's assassination to the Kremlin. Matthew Puncher was found stabbed to death at home in Oxfordshire with multiple stab wounds in his arms, neck, chest and abdomen, and the police treated it as a suicide. In all, they found 14 cases of suspicious deaths. The police and the judicial system had recorded all of these as death by suicide, accident or natural causes. But Heidi wanted to know what the intelligence services thought. MI5 and other British intelligence services are notoriously tight-lipped and impenetrable. Fortunately, though, Heidi had a colleague across the seas who could help. Jason Leopold was a recent hire to the BuzzFeed US team. He'd had some major scoops in the past and had an impressive contacts book crammed with US intelligence personnel. So Heidi gave him the names she thought were suspicious and asked Jason to put the feelers out. And then the team waited, and waited, until... 
a message came through from Jason on the encrypted messaging app Signal. I think the way that came to my attention, because I believe I was on a phone call and I think it was Tom bouncing up and down opposite me in his seat going, oh my God, oh my God, Heidi, have you seen Signal? We need to talk. And so we all read the message and we all just charged into our little office in the corner um, where we could shut ourselves away and just kind of, you know, just take a step back and say, oh my God, this is, this is extraordinary. And what does this mean? And where do we go from here? Jason had spoken to his sources. They confirmed that US spies had intelligence linking all the 14 cases Heidi was looking at to either the Russian state or Russian mafia groups. And not only that, but that all of that intelligence had been shared with MI6, and MI6 had clearly sat on it, because every case had been treated as non-suspicious by the British authorities. And so that was just a huge game-changer. You know, we could barely contain ourselves because this clearly changed everything. Like We now knew that there, there was high-grade intelligence in existence, confirming the connections between this network of people that we had unraveled and also confirming our suspicions that there was a strong Russian connection to every every single death. Heidi knew she was onto something big, a pattern of what seemed to be murders going uninvestigated on British soil. But now it seemed the US intelligence community was seriously concerned about it too. So in spring last year, Heidi headed out on a flight to the middle of the United States. She can't say exactly where. She was on her way to meet a top intelligence official, Steve Hall, who until 2015 was head of Russia operations at the CIA. We met Steve in um, in the US in the early spring. It was a really scorching hot day and we sat outside at a Mexican restaurant um, and over the course of a three-hour meal of tacos and burritos etc we um we just talked this whole thing out and he just gave us this incredible insight into um, the cia's perspective on russian assassinations in the uk and that was a really huge moment in our investigation because he was clearly somebody so incredibly tapped in and so knowledgeable about this hall didn't mince his words and he sat with us over a three-hour meeting and told us in great detail about the threat of Russian assassinations, but in particular about how this had become a massive problem in the UK um, and that there were real problems with the way that the UK authorities were addressing that problem. Um, and so that really confirmed that there were concerns about the, the posture of the British government at the very highest levels of the US intelligence community. But the story doesn't end there. It wasn't long before strange things started happening. Things that suggested that the team's digging around wasn't going unnoticed. Next time on The Tip-Off. It was one of the more extraordinary interviews of my career in that I couldn't quite believe we'd found her when the police hadn't. What they found were traces of gelsemia, a plant which produces a poison which is extremely rare and very hard to A man in a large black car appeared outside my house and he was there every single night, almost all night, just for weeks on end. The detective work continues and Heidi and the team race against time to put the final puzzle pieces together. The tip-off is hosted and produced by me, Maeve McClenaghan, with production help from Chica Ayres. Our theme music is by Dice Muse and other music in this episode by The Losers. 
Tune in next week for part two of this story. And in the meantime, please do take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or tweet at Tip Off Podcast. And stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. If you like this episode, then go back and find episode 16 in our archive called Web of Death Part 2 to hear how the story ends. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.